Welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version, a podcast in which I have the privilege of interviewing women who have inspired me and who will undoubtedly inspire you. I am an attorney, author, podcaster, journalist, and mentor to women in long-term recovery from alcoholism and also from sexual abuse and assault. I'm based in Washington, DC, and I have found a passion in putting out weekly podcasts to amplify the women of inspiring quality whose paths have crossed mine. Today, I have Dr. Barbara, otherwise known as Bobby Kirshen, the president of EduCorp Consultants Corporation and senior innovation advisor at the Graduate School of Education for Education Entrepreneurship at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a former education industry entrepreneur. Dr. Kirshen has more than 40 years experience in education as a researcher, entrepreneur, developer, investor, and company executive. She developed the first children's software project products for Microsoft, as well as award-winning product for, for McGraw-Hill, Apple, CCC, Pearson, and others. She's the author of several books, including Internet for Kids, Exploring Creative Writer and Exploring Fine Artist, Understanding Computers Through Applications, Activities for Kids and Kids at Heart, and more. She has received numerous awards and recognitions, including the WISE Prize, the King Bahrain UNESCO Prize, the 2019 Most Influential Corporate Board Directors, 100 EdTech Influencers, and Laureate Tech Awards, Technology Benefiting Humanity. You can learn more by looking at the show notes, following her on Twitter at bkirshen, or LinkedIn, or her latest book will be found, information about the book at innovatehers.org, which also has social media contacts. So you can look at all of this in the show notes. Welcome, Bobby. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you've had such an interesting career with so many tentacles all over education and corporate worlds. And uh, I just don't know how you've done it all. Can you tell the listeners, how did you get started and what drove you towards corporate and education innovation? Um, I got started uh, in an era when women were not you know, going to college and getting married, but I became engaged and interested in computing before it was sort of the thing that women did or anybody did. And I realized when I graduated and went to work as a computer programmer at a large corporation that it wasn't very interesting for me. I really wanted to do something that could have an impact and with, with technology. Right. And I realized that that was going to be education. And I went back to graduate school to get my master's in computer science and sort of an anecdote, which I share in my book, Innovators, is I was told when I got ready to take my comprehensives by the dean of the graduate school that nobody would ever use computers in education. So I was going to have to do my comprehensives in AI. Well, clearly I had already studied AI because that was what was going to influence 
education. And I said, you got to be kidding me to the dean. I said, you, you don't count on that. And of course, he's long gone and I'm still involved in education and technology. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And I know you teach at the University of Pennsylvania. How did you get that position? Did you attend school there? No, I didn't. I did not. I got my doctorate and my master's at Virginia Tech. And I did my master's in computer science and my doctorate in instructional design. And I ended up at Penn because it was part of my life journey. I was clearly interested in combining education and technology and entrepreneurship. I realized that over I had been running a private equity fund of $50 million. We were investing in education technology. And I realized that there wasn't a degree program that combined entrepreneurship and education and business. And I was going through my own personal change of life, going through a divorce. And I went to the dean who I knew at Penn and I said, you know, you really need to create this program. And he said, well, I'm interested. And then he said, well, you know, we really want you to come in. And I said, but you know, I have three requirements. One, not moving to Philadelphia. Two, you probably can't afford me. And three, I'm only going to do it for a couple of years because I was looking for something to sort of end at my career. Well, I'm clearly still at the University of Pennsylvania. I did live in Philly for seven years. And when COVID came, moved back to Washington, D.C. And I and I, he agreed to pay me a salary that I thought was reasonable for the work I was going to do for him. Um, way out of line for most university programs, but I brought in a lot of money through this program that has been very successful. Wow, that's a wonderful story. Wow, so you have an idea, you use your contacts and you make it happen. And that is inspiring to all of us because exactly. many, yeah, many of us have ideas, but implementation is a whole different ball game. Which is basically the basis for the book I ended up writing. So when I got to Penn, I started doing research about entrepreneurial mindset and what we were going to teach these young entrepreneurs. And I don't think you can teach somebody to be an entrepreneur. I believe entrepreneurs are born, not made, but I can make you a better entrepreneur. And by that, I mean, I can teach you a set of skills and enhance your personality traits to make you better at being an entrepreneur. So I started researching this idea and began to run a survey of the people coming through my business plan competition at Penn, through our master's program and through the incubator that I was running and the small fund we had. And I had all this data I'd gathered and I found out, I started looking at the data and dissecting it and realized that women have clearly have a unique set of traits that make them rise to the top. And I told those stories in the book that I recently published. I love it. I love this book, Innovate Hers, Why Purpose-Driven Entrepreneurial Women Rise to the Top. It's a really fantastic book that has received lots of good press and many uh, wonderful reviews. I'll read a couple. Coco Brown, CEO of the Athena Alliance, wrote, Innovate Hers inspires and guides by telling the stories of a diverse set of women who have developed the mindset and have used it to succeed in brilliant ways. Jack Lynch, CEO and president of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt says, one inspiring story after another. This is a great book about great women. 
Can you um, share with the listeners one of the stories from the book? Sure. I, I have multiple stories. We interviewed over a hundred women, talked to them. We wanted a book that had diversity. We wanted a book that had regional diversity as well as ethnic diversity. We wanted all um, age diversity. So we picked, um, originally we were going to have 25, but we just couldn't pick 25. So we interviewed 27 women in the book and plus my co-author and I tell our stories. And I also wanted to write a book that was about stories, not research. And sort of one of my, you know, idols and the books I really like are books by Malcolm Gladwell and Adam Grant, who base their books on research, but tell stories. And when I ask you to tell me something, a story you remember from Adam Grant's book or, or Malcolm Gladwell's, you tell me the story, you don't give me the data, but, but everybody remembers that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert. It's sort mm -hmm. of, so I wanted to write a book and interview women that told me the same kind of stories. And I think there's two stories that I really wanna share. The first is a woman by the name of Lisa Hall. Lisa has been doing impact investing for many, many years. She now heads up the Impact Investment Fund for Apollo Management. She graduated from Wharton undergrad and Harvard Business School. And she got her first job out of school in a bank. She needed to pay back her loans. So she needed a job that paid money. And she ended up working in an area of community housing. It was a community grant fund. And she said she hit the jackpot because she was able to do well and do good. She went on to run one of the largest uh, community investment funds. She ran one of the largest education family offices out of Europe, and she now runs Apollo. Her story is very moving because when we thought about naming this book, we also saw, thought about calling it to do well and do good. Um, we also, another story that I particularly like is a story shared um, by um, a woman who heads up the Lutheran Refugee Committee, Krish. And Krish tells her story about how she got there and how she had worked for in the Hillary Clinton. She'd worked in the State Department. She worked in the White House. And she would go off and go into meetings, as all of the women on this call probably at some time have experienced, where they step in the room and they think, oh, my God, I'm not here. Why am I here? Nobody's recognizing I'm here. Nobody's listening to what I'm saying. They you know, I can say the same thing that the man down the table says five minutes later, and they don't remember that you said it first. And in the book, she said it, what she's learned is that what you need are more people so you can see it to be it. And I think that that was really a telling story about women and how they have to step up to the role they're in and they need role models, which led to a whole chapter in the book on mentoring and how important mentors are, and the work you mentioned that you do, and the work that we do in helping women move forward as entrepreneurs, and whether they are starting a business or being entrepreneurial within a business, they still need mentorship. Yes, absolutely. Can you name a mentor of yours? Well, I've had lots of mentors over the years, but one of my and both men and women. And of course, I'm from a generation where it was more likely to have a male mentor than a woman mentor. But um, I, one of my best mentors that I ever had was when I, I was an academic. 
clearly I was in university, I was teaching, I was running academic computing, and I decided to leave, um, which is another story of why I left the university. But when I was leaving, the president said, this is probably not the right position for you because you're much too entrepreneurial. So I had been approached while I was at the university by an investment banker. And he, um, she came to me and, and said, we really need somebody that understands the technology and the pedagogy. And would you help us write a white paper on the growth of the ed tech industry for one of our investor conferences? And at the time, I didn't know the difference between an investor investment bank or a commercial bank. I thought everybody was a commercial bank. Everybody worked as a teller, but I learned a lot. And the person that was my mentor was a gentleman that ran the venture fund for one of the large investment banks. And he said, Bobby, I'm going to teach you everything I know about investment banking, and you're going to teach me everything you know about education, and we're going to be a great partnership and make great investments. And we went on to do that. And it, it, it's still to this day, he's a mentor and good friend. Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, I definitely can point to mentors throughout my life, and I'm trying very hard to pay it forward in my life. Another fact we found in the book that I think you will really appreciate is when we asked the women in the book who was their role model as an entrepreneur, whether it was their mother or their father, almost to the every single woman said their mother was their entrepreneurial mentor, even if she never left the home to work, even if she stayed at home. But she did all the things entrepreneurs did. She juggled budget. She And many of the women in the book were from lower income homes. Um, a couple had lived, grow up living in trailers or communes. Um, and when we asked the same women who was their mentor as a leader, their father. Is who mm. they oh, so, that's very interesting. Wow. Wow. So is there synergy? My question I continue to ask, and maybe my next book will explore this, but are, are entrepreneurs leaders or not leaders? Mm. Interesting. So often entrepreneurial the founder of companies being replaced whether a woman or a man because they can't lead the company to the next growth stage mm. they're great thinkers they have passion they have good ideas and they get that company started but when it takes the growth stage they often step back they may not leave the company they may become the evangelist they may change from being the ceo to the president and some leave when they realize it's not a fit so it was an interesting data that we discovered when we asked that question? Definitely. I think that's a multi-layered question and the answer is not always clear because it takes a, both skill sets that you described in the anecdote about the mother and the father. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to reading that book as well. I would like to tell <laughs> our, <I> <laughs> yeah, our listeners that you should look at the Innovate Her's website because it contains many good resources for those of us who want to explore entrepreneurship or leadership, podcasts, videos, uh, articles. It's a very rich website that is not just a book. It's continually offering more. So check out their blog, their events, their- um, Also submit your story because every month we publish somebody's story of their journey to being an innovator. Ah, oh, that, that's great. What a great way to highlight and continue to inspire. So I inevitably, uh, those of you who are pioneers in the computer and other industries 
had to have faced some obstacles um, and primarily discrimination against women. And now as we age, there is ageism to combat. Can you share one of those stories and how you were able to work around that obstacle? Well, I think one of the humorous stories that I had to share was when I had first finished my doctorate. And at that time, engineers didn't do their own coding. They had a whole team of coders. Um, and I was GE, General Electric's asked me to teach a class on coding to their engineers. And I was young when I finished my doctorate. And I'm standing in that classroom and all, all men, no women, all these men were work, walking in. And this gentleman walked up and said, I'm here for the class. I would like to introduce myself to Dr. Kershan. And I said, I am Dr. Kershan. And he kept saying, well, I want to speak to Dr. Kershan. In his <laughs> mind, I couldn't have been Dr. Kershan. It only could be an older man, not me. And finally, another gentleman in the class walked up and he knew this guy and he said, she is Dr. Kershan. <laughs> oh so my gosh. Sort of an early example of discrimination. But I think the one that hits home the most to me, and I mentioned it earlier, is women are invisible often in the rooms. And they need to make themselves visible by speaking out and letting people know that they are capable, that they should be in the room. So women experience something called the imposter syndrome much more than men. Sometimes men do. And I remember um, an example recently. I'm on a corporate board, which at the time were not a whole lot. When I got on the board, not a lot of women were on corporate boards. And so public board. And I... Um, and recently we had a board meeting and I, we were talking about this topic and I went into a suggestion elaborately describing what we should do to address this. And, you know, the, the conversation just went on. Nobody commented about it. You know, they moved on half the time. I wonder in board meetings, how much people are really listening. <laughs> anyway, about 10 minutes later, the, another gentleman on the board, literally said the exact same thing I said. I don't know if he was just repeating what I said, but it was the first time I had this experience where I wanted to stand up and say, you know, I just said that, but I didn't want to be that woman that did that. But luckily the chairman of the board, who happens to be a man said, very interesting, but that's exactly what Bobby just said. <laughs> it was first of all, it's interesting that he acknowledged that, which is unusual. Yes. And second of all, that he listened to what I said and realized somebody either hadn't been listening or was repeating it as his. I doubt he was repeating it as his. But um, anyway, so that's an example of where I've felt that I needed to step up as a woman. And I have lots of other examples of that. Remember, I'm in a field of technology, computing, that there weren't many women in. I work with, as an investment banker, I work with many men, most men, at the time, more and more women are becoming investors. So I'm often in rooms where I am one of men, a few women or, or the only woman. So I've learned to adjust clearly, to be outspoken in a positive way, to let the people that have sort of overlooked that know, not in the middle of the meeting and not stand up and say, you just overlooked me, but offline. And I've also learned to mentor the women that I work with to speak out. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. We need more people like you to stand up in those ways. And I applaud you and 
respect you for doing so because it's it's because it's not always easy. I mean, I when I worked in one of the biggest law firms in DC, I was frequently mistaken as the secretary or the legal assistant, <laughs> and uh, have similar stories similar to yours, but not not a lot of champions in the men who were senior to me in um, helping me navigate or be heard. But um, that's changing as more and more women like you achieve leadership positions. I never take minutes at meetings, not because I can't, but when somebody says, Bobby, will you take the minutes? I always decline. <laughs> mm, that's probably a very good idea. Politely, and, but I did politely. Yes. And I like how you express that you make difficult conversations or points in a positive way that we don't have to be combative to make our points. Right. It's important. I also wanted to share with the group how I met Bobby. She's part of a group of, of thinking women and they have periodic dinners and I was lucky enough to be invited to one and all of the women should be on this podcast. All of them are leaders, entrepreneurs, uh, big thinkers. And, and I would encourage all of the listeners to make more time to meet with particularly women whose paths you admire because we can all learn from ourselves. Can you tell the group a little bit about the inception of that group and what it has brought to you personally? Well, it's a fascinating group, and I was lucky enough, as you were, to be invited at the founding of it. But I met the woman that founded it because I was looking for a publisher for my book. And I met her because she is a hybrid, you know, independent publisher. And we really just hit it off. I ended up not having her publish my book, not because I didn't think she was great at what she's doing, but I wanted one that built my website as part of it. And, and Emily wasn't doing that at the time. So we, Emily called several months later and said, would I like to be part of this group of women? And she invited some fascinating women. I didn't know any of them. Everybody sort of knew one or two people at the meeting somehow. And we continued to invite others to come. It's sort of whoever's having it gets to invite someone or we ask the hostess. Um, this particular month, we're having a murder mystery one, but mm. I'm going to unfortunately miss it. But um, we, we've we come together. The conversation is always fascinating. We are always talking about not just politics, but issues around women. Um, how do you get books published? How do you engage with younger women? And also, it is a, a group that we've got a diversity of age. I mean, we don't have very young people, but we have all sorts of people still working, retired. Um, one of the women that comes was a, um, ran a, a language, she was a teacher in the language learning area. And now she's an artist. I mean, she's always painted, but now she does it full time. I recently went to see her first show here in DC. That's fantastic. I love that group. And the person, the publisher of whom you were speaking, Emily Barras, is the publisher of her company is called Bold Story Press, and she only publishes books by women. She's been a guest on this show, and I encourage all of you to listen to her her episode. And if you have a book in you, a story to tell, look up Bold Story Press. So, Bobby, I also know that you do a great deal of public speaking. You had a recent talk at Deloitte, and um, a strategy analyst there posted on LinkedIn that her takeaways from the talk included, you can do well 
and do good by pursuing a purpose-driven career. How did you figure that out? I mean, it 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 is clear to me now, but as a young person, I thought I had to make I have to make money. I have to pay off my student loans. I yeah. it wouldn't have even occurred to me at that point that I could merge the two. Well, I was lucky enough, as I said, to be recruited to become an investment banker. And after I worked for this large bank, my one of the women that was at that bank, one of her classmates from Stanford Business School called and said, would we like to run an education fund? He was going to raise $50 million. And it was, group, it was a fund under SPO Partners in San Francisco. And he really basically was the person I learned that from first. Mm. He was this gentleman that always said why he wanted to invest in education is because he felt like it was an area that he could do well and do good. And he was financially overly successful. I mean, but he was always thinking about the impact of the company as well. So he wasn't going to invest in companies that were going to hurt the environment. So one of the investments he made which you would initially think, oh my gosh, he's going to kill the economy. He invested in an organization that basically was one of the largest um, farming of trees, Plum Creek. And when he did it, he realized that he was not going to want, he didn't want to be known as the person who cut down trees and wiped out the environment. And he went to the Nature Conservancy and made the first agreement with the Nature Conservancy about how they were going to run this business to preserve the environment. So he was the first person that introduced me to the concept of doing well and doing good. I love it. I love it. I hope that spreads and all of us, I think, can marry the two in our chosen career paths. Mm. Yeah. So you also are a member of many boards and uh, many of us would love to serve on boards. I was a board member of many nonprofits, but how does one become the member of a board for a for-profit organization or business? With great difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> um, being, getting on a public board is very difficult. Um, and we're sort of at that crossroads. As I said, when I got on it, they were looking for women. They needed, it was an education for-profit education company. They needed somebody who understood education and had a financial background. So and I knew the president from some other work. So I basically went to him and asked, you have to be vocal and say, I'd really like to be on a public board. And it seems like I might be a good member of your board. So he pushed for me. But today it's even more difficult. So boards are looking for diversity. So we've had trouble even on our board getting women of color onto our board because if they're valuable and they're smart and they're ready to be on a board, they have 20 people lined up to put them on the board. So if you're a white male, forget it. You're not getting on a board very often these days. <laughs> if you're a black male, you're more likely or color, color. If you're a woman of color, you're probably way up on the list. And if you're a white woman, it's better, but it's not great. So my suggestion for getting on boards is network and network and network. You have to tell people, it's kind of like if you're looking for a date. Yeah, <laughs> you have to tell people you're looking to go out. So you have to tell people you want to be on boards. You have to make sure your resume is ready, board ready. So somebody should use a mentor to help you create a CV that is board ready. You need to, unfortunately, boards 
clearly and positively have a age limit because you don't want to put somebody on a board that's 70 or 75. So if you're on and you're in a 45 to 60 age category, you're more likely to be um, boards will be interested in you. It doesn't mean they won't put somebody older than that on a board, but it's harder because mm-hmm. many boards actually have ter- uh, age limits. Mm-hmm. Most of them you have to get on before a certain age, but then you can, then they have le- term limits too, or more and more of them are having term limits. So as again, the only thing I can suggest is network, network, network. The uh, review you read by Coco is she runs Athena Alliance. That is a group of women that specifically works to get women on boards. Um, You can join, they help you write your resumes. They hold weekly salons, which are wonderful about getting on boards, about managing audit committees. And and it's a great organization to be part of. It's all women, but I noticed this week she put out a questionnaire of whether we should let men join. (laughs) Mm. um, Anyway, um, Yes, just network and find organizations. There's a whole list of them if you do a search of organizations that help women get on boards. There's the there's the 30% group out of the UK that works to get boards to have 30% women on their boards. So, um, but again, it's who you know. Boards are very rarely, although more and more they are, very rarely use they use headhunters, but they basically. Now it's a networking, you know, if they are using a head honor, they'll refer the people to the search firm. Great. Well, that's valuable information. So I like to ask all of our guests, what do you do to become your best version? <laughs> I think that's changed over time. And I think COVID has um, changed me significantly. Um, earlier in my career, I also was changed, but I think the best thing I do is take time for myself, whether it's traveling, reading, swimming, because I like to swim. I think that I've learned that not to sweat the small stuff. When I was younger, I used to worry about when planes were delayed and, well, I was going to be late to a meeting. And, you know, I just realized that there's just too many important things and not to sweat the small stuff. And that helps me be a better person, both with my children, both with my clients and both with myself. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. And I thank you for being on the Becoming Your Better Best Version podcast. I know you are a very busy woman and I encourage all of you to go to innovatehers.org, look at the show notes, connect with Bobby because this is someone that you want on your team. Thank we'll you. Post this. We'll post it on our site, this podcast on our site also. So thank you. Fantastic. Take care. Thank you. Bye.